Chapter thirty six of Mystery of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter thirty six The Rising Tide. I think there must be some provision of nature which in times of real danger keeps men's minds away from personal fears. I can honestly say that not a thought of danger for myself crossed my mind, though I was harrowed up and appalled by fears for Marjorie. My mental excitement, however, took a practical shape, and thought after thought flashed through my brain as to how I could best serve my wife. The situation with its woeful possibilities came first and afterwards, in quick succession, the efforts which might be made. But first I must see how we really stood. I did not know this cave and the lengths and levels of it well enough to be sure whether the tide could block us completely in. If there were but headroom, the actual distance was not far to swim. This I could soon settle. Taking Marjorie's lamp, which stood on the ledge of the rock, I ran down the cave, calling out as I went, "'Stay here a minute, dear.' I want to see how far the tide is in. The double winding of the cave made it hard for me to judge at a glance. It was only when I came to the piece of straight passage leading up from the sea that I could judge. From the time I left the treasure chamber of the cave, the water got deeper and deeper as I went. But the difficulty was not in this way. I knew that so long as there was headway, I could swim for it and take Marjorie with me. But when I came down the strait, my hopes were altogether dashed. As the floor dipped towards the sea, so did the roof in much greater degree. I knew that there was one place where at low water there was only barely headway even when we stooped low, but I was not prepared for what I saw. The water had already risen so far that this place was, from where I stood waist-high in water, obliterated. The rocky roof sank into the still level water. For a moment I considered whether it would not be best to dive through it. I had the cord to guide me, and I knew that towards its mouth the cave roof rose again. But then there was Marjorie. She was not like myself, an accomplished diver. It might be possible, if the worst should come to the worst, to draw her through the water-choked piece of tunnel by the guiding cord. But if the cord should break, or anything go wrong, the thought was too dreadful. I hurried back to Marjorie to see how far it might be advisable to make the attempt, however dangerous, rather than be drowned in the deepening water of the cave, or asphyxiated if the space left were too small to allow us breathing till the falling of the tide. I found Marjorie standing on the shelf of rock to which she had climbed by the aid of the San Cristobal figurehead. She was holding up the torch and examining carefully the walls and roof of the cave. When she heard the splash of my coming through the water, she turned. I could see that, though her face was pale, she was very calm and self-possessed. She said quietly, I have been looking for high water mark, but I can hardly see any sign of it. I suppose in this dark cave, where neither seaweed nor zoophyte exists, there is no such thing. Unless, of course, it be that the whole cave is under the water line, in which case we must be ready for the worst. As she spoke, she was raising the torch till its light illuminated, so far as possible, the extreme angle of the cavern where it ran up to a sort of point. 
I scrambled up beside her, and making use of my greater height, took the torch, and keeping it away at arm's length, put my hand into the narrowing angle. I had a sort of secret hope that there might be some long crack or rift, which, though it might be impossible for our bodies, might still give us air. Any such half-formed hope was soon shattered. The angle of the cave was in the solid rock, and there was no fissure or even crack beyond. As there was no clue to the level reached by the tide, I tried back on the possibility of gauging it by measuring from low water, so far as my memory of the tides might serve. Judging by the depth of the water, so far as I had gone, the fall of the floor level must here have been some three feet. The floor level of the cave was almost that of low water, except where it dipped under the overhanging roof, or where was the ascending grade up to the pool in which the treasure boxes lay. As here on the border of the North Sea, with no estuary to increase tidage, the normal rise of the tide is between eleven and twelve feet, we had to account for another eight or nine feet for the rise of the tide. The ledge was about a foot above the surface of the water. If my calculations were correct, there was headroom and breathing space, for as I stood on the ledge, the top of my head was still about two feet from the highest point of roof over us. I could not, however, be certain of my calculations within a couple of feet. If, therefore, we could keep our place on the shelf of rock and endure the cold, we might yet win through. The cold was a serious matter. At Cruden, where the full sweep of the icy current from the North Sea runs inshore, the water is grievously cold, even in the hottest summer time. Already we were feeling the effects of our wet clothes even in this silent cavern where the heat seemed to be much more than outside. When we had been looking at the jewels, I had myself felt the chill and could feel Marjorie shiver now and again. Indeed, I had been about to suggest our returning when I made the discovery of the rising tide. It was no use regretting, however. We were caged in the cavern, and our only chance was to hold on somehow till the tide should fall again. The practical side of Marjorie's mind was all awake. It was she who quietly refilled the two lamps, and, with much spluttering of the wick at first, lighted again the one which I had let fall into the water. When both lamps were ready, she put out the torch and placed it in the tin box which she handed to me, saying, We may need all the air we can get for our breathing, and the torches would burn it up. We must have two lamps, lest one should fail. Shove the box as far as it will go into the corner of the cave. It will be safe there, as safe as us at any rate, for it will be over our heads. As she spoke, a new idea occurred to me. I might raise the level of the ledge by piling the ingots on it. I did not lose any time, but jumping down began at once to lift them one by one on the ledge. It was heavy work and no one but a very strong man could have lifted them from off the ground, much less have placed them on a ledge over where he stood. Moreover, I had to bend into the water to reach them, and in the years which they had lain there in juxtaposition, some deposit of salt or sea-lime of some kind had glued them together. After the separation of the first, however, this difficulty grew less. Marjorie aided me in placing the bars in position. When they were once fixed, their great weight kept them in place. It was odd how little these moments the treasure counted for. 
the little heap of rubies lay on the shelf of rock unnoticed and when in the strain of placing the ingots some of them were brushed off into the water neither marjorie nor i took the trouble even to sweep them with a brush of the hand into a safer place one of the metal caskets was tumbled bodily into the water without a thought when the ingots were all in place and shaken into steady position we got on the ledge together and began to test the security of our platform it would be too late to find out any flaw of construction when the tide should have risen we had made a foothold nearly two feet above the surface of the ledge and this might give us at the last an additional chance at any rate even if we should not be so hard-pressed as to have to raise our heads so high it would give us a longer period of comparative dryness we were already beginning to feel the chill of the tide in those caves the air is all right and we had not felt chilled although we were more or less wet through but i dreaded lest it might numb either of us so much as to prevent our taking every chance when we stood together on the pile of gold and silver our heads were so close to the roof that i felt safe so far as actually drowning or asphyxiation were concerned if the tide did not rise higher than i had computed if we could only hold out till the tide had fallen sufficiently we might get back and then we began the long dreary wait for the rising tide the time seemed endless for our apprehension and suspense multiplied the real danger whatever it might be we stood on the cave floor till the water had reached our waists and all this time tried to keep moving to dance up and down to throw about arms and legs so as to maintain the circulation of the blood then we climbed up and sat on the platform of bullion till the water rose round our knees again then we stood on the ledge and took what exercise we could till the water climbed up over our feet and knees it was a terrible trial to feel the icy still water creep up and up and up there was not a sound no drip or ripple of water anywhere only silence as deadly as death itself then came the time when we had to stand together on the pile of bullion which we had built up we stood close for there was merely foothold i held marjorie up as well as i could so as to lessen for her the strain of standing still our hearts beat together we felt it and we knew it it was only the expression of both our thoughts when marjorie said thank god dear at the worst we can die together in turn we held the lamp well over the water and as we looked in aching suspense we saw the dark flood rise up to the sloping roof of the cave and steal towards us with such slow relentless precision that for my own part i felt i must scream i felt marjorie tremble the little morsel of hysterics which goes to make up the sum total of every woman was beginning to assert itself indeed there was something hypnotic in that silent line of death creeping slowly towards us at this time too the air began to feel less fresh our own breaths and the exhalations of the lamp was visiting our breathing space i whispered to marjorie we must pull out the light she shuddered but said with as brave a voice as she could all right i suppose it is necessary but darling hold me tight and do not let me away from you or i shall die i let the lantern fall into the water its hissing for a moment drowned my own murmur of grief and marjorie's suppressed groan and now in the darkness the terror of the rising flood grew worse and worse 
the chill water crept up and up and up till at last it was only by raising her head that marjorie could breathe i leaned back against the rock and bending my legs outward lifted her so that she rested her feet upon my knees up and up rose the chill water till it reached my chin and i feared that the last moments had come there was one chance more for marjorie and though it cut me to the soul to speak it for i knew it would tear at her very heartstrings i had to try it marjorie my wife the end is close i fear we may not both live in a few minutes more at most the water will be over my mouth when that time comes i shall sink over the pile of treasure on which we rest you must then stand on me it will raise you sufficiently to let you hold out longer a dreadful groan broke from her oh my god was all she said but every nerve in her body seemed to quiver then without a word she seemed to become limp and was sliding out of my arms i held her up strongly for i feared she had swooned she groaned out let me go let me go either of us can rest on the other's body i shall never leave this if you die dear one i said do as i wish and i shall feel that even death will be a happy thing since it can help you she said nothing but clung to me and our mouths met i knew what she meant if die we must we should die together in a kiss in that lover's kiss our very souls seemed to meet we felt that the gates of the unknown world were being unbarred to us and all its glorious mysteries were about to be unveiled in the impassive stillness of that rising tide where never a wave or ripple broke the dreadful silent calm there was no accidental fall or rise which might give added uneasiness or sudden hope we had by this time become so far accustomed to its deadly perfection as to accept its conditions this recognition of inevitable force made for resignation and i think that in those moments both marjorie and i realized the last limitations of humanity when one has accepted the inevitable the mere act of dying is easy of accomplishment but there is a contra to everything in the great ledgers of the books of life and death and it is only a final balance which counts for gain or loss the very resignation which makes the thought of death easy to bear is but a balance of power which may not be gainsayed in the struggle of hope and despair the winged one submits and that is all his wings are immortal out of fire or water or pestilence or famine or the red mist of battle they ever rise again when once there is light of any kind to animate them even when marjorie's mouth was bent to mine in a fond kiss of love and death the wings of hope fluttered around her head for an instant or two she paused as if listening or waiting and then with a glad cry which in that narrow space seemed to ring exultingly she said you are saved you are saved the water is falling it has sunk below your lips even in that dread moment of life and death i could not but be touched by her way of rejoicing in the possibility of our common safety her only thought was for me but her words were true the tide had reached its full the waters were falling minute by minute we waited waited in breathless suspense 
clinging to each other in an ecstasy of hope and love. The chill which had been upon us for so long, numbing every sense and seeming to make any idea of effort impossible, seemed to have lost its power. In the new quickening of hope, our hearts seemed to beat more warmly, till the blood tingled in our veins. Oh, but the time was long, there in the dark, with the silent waters receding inch by inch, with a slowness which was inconceivable. The strain of waiting became, after a while, almost unbearable. I felt that I must speak to Marjorie, and make her speak and keep speaking, lest we should both break down, even at the very last. In the time of our waiting for death, we had held on to our determination, blindly resolute to struggle to the last, even though we had accepted the inevitable. But now there was impatience added to our apprehension. We did not know the measure of our own endurance, and terror seemed to brood over us with flapping wings. Truly, the moments of coming life are longer than hours of coming death. End of section 36 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.